0: Usually you have to be a little bit delusional to believe that any sort of change is possible because change is really hard. And so it's like convenient to surround yourself with other delusionaries. <laughs> Otherwise you might get demotivated and want to quit. So like that's the power of the Bay Area. It's a cultural thing, you know, there's enough highly skilled and, you know, a little bit delusional people all in one pretty small geography that, you know, it's magic that can happen sometimes.
1: This is The Redemptive Edge from Praxis. On this podcast, we talk to people who are building businesses and nonprofits that look at the world differently, or we'd say, redemptively. They're aiming to renew culture through acts of creative restoration. Rather than using people to advance their mission, they aim to bless people. And they're led by people who aren't living for themselves or even just satisfied with improving themselves but people who aim to die to themselves so that something beautiful can happen in the world. That's the Redemptive Edge. It's not so much somewhere you've arrived as a journey you decide to take, and this podcast is about stories from that journey. I'm Andy Crouch, partner for theology and culture at Praxis. My guest on this episode is Jeff Huber of Standard Cyborg. I met Jeff and his co-founder, Garrett Spiegel, when they were fellows in the Praxis Business Accelerator, and several things struck me right away. First, as you're going to hear, any conversation with Jeff goes very deep, very quickly. Actually, both of those. It goes very deep in the sense that Jeff is thinking fundamentally about what he believes about the world and how it should shape what he makes in the world. And it goes very quickly because he talks fast and thinks even faster. You may or may not fully agree with the way Jeff sees the world, but what I find compelling about him is that he has a genuinely alternative imagination. He sees and envisions a world that most people don't see. And he holds on to that vision enthusiastically and provocatively, but not dogmatically. And even though I think we have different instincts in some ways and starting points, I'm struck by how deeply Christian his vision is in that even though his company is called Standard Cyborg, He's incarnational. He believes the body matters. On their website, Standard Cyborg described their mission this way. Our mission is to make the world more personal. I love that. I think they partly mean make it more personalized, more exactly fitted to the needs of each individual and their environment. But they also take it very personally. As you'll hear, this is a deeply personal mission for Jeff Huber himself. I think I'd like to start actually with the name of the company, Standard Mm -hmm. Cyborg, Mm because I do think you may have the coolest and most (laughs) faintly alarming name of any Praxis (laughs) portfolio organization. I'm also interested in, in the current products that you have and that you're offering, which the name sort of implies something way bigger than, than maybe what you currently do, even though what you currently do is really interesting. So yeah. maybe we could talk about like what you currently offer, how that fits ultimately into a company whose name is Standard Cyborg, and mm. why anyone would name a company Standard Cyborg in the first place.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so- This is the the unedited version, the the non PR approved version. Um, Good, we want that version. I remember in that time, I think it was listening to a podcast or reading a blog post, and I believe it was Phil Libin, the guy that founded Evernote, was talking about naming a company, and his heuristic for naming a company was that it should be sufficiently epic. <laughs> if, my mem- if my memory serves, so I took that advice and I attempted to name something that was sufficiently epic. To the actual name, some other stuff that was sort of happening in my life at the time. I had just finished reading Titan, which was the biography of John D. Rockefeller. Um, oh. obviously, Standard Oil. <laughs> <as a> epic. <laughs> Rockefeller, epic in its own way, for sure. And yeah, lastly, obviously, like one of the th- sort of themes that I've just been personally thinking about and. Talking to other people about, yourself included, is this whole concept of cyborg, which I think maybe the simplest way to think about that is like, where does technology stop and humanity begin? And where is their overlap? To what degree are we already cyborgs? To what degree are we already sort of techno sapiens? And so the, the first thing we did was we produced a prosthetic leg and we would actually create prosthetic legs from scratch. I think what we ended up deciding to do was, and this sort of, you know, sort of obvious cyborg angles, right? When you're thinking about prosthetics. <laughs> Literally, like, I am an APT, I wear prosthetic legs. So there was sort of a personal connection there. So uh, that was the first thing the company did. We ended up switching to build software to create prosthetics and that software is now used in many places around the world in both for-profit and non-profit contexts which is very cool and exciting to see um it's used uh, with like Syrian war refugees in Jordan it's used to serve people through the uh, international red cross in um India it's certainly used in a lot of just different university and for-profit contexts here in the United States one of the big trends that we see happening in the world is 3D sensors becoming everywhere you know obviously this is happening In things like self-driving cars, really those cars are driven by the ability to put small LiDAR sensors, certainly optical sensors, sonar, ultrasound, a bunch of different technologies into self-driving cars. But that same sort of suite of sensors is being miniaturized and put into mobile phones as well. Mm. So we made the observation that the sensor that powers Face ID in all the new iPhones and new iPads can also be used to just scan stuff, like you can kind of 3D scan anything. And so we built a bunch of computer vision, what's called fusion, a fusion pipeline, to take that depth data and turn it into a 3D model. And so, yeah. I mean, a photo but with 3D with depth, a video but 3D with depth, and then maybe a panorama but 3D, which is a 3D scan. And then we're also focused on giving people the tools they need to... Take those scans and make them useful. So analyze those scans. We have a lot of customers in kind of the fitting stuff around the human body category. We have customers to do shoe sizing, helmet sizing, custom shoe orthotics. We're sort of learning about new use cases every day. We think that you know something that is like not at all a thing today, which is you scan your foot to get order a pair of shoes over the internet, uh, will be something that every single person maybe on earth does. You know, maybe only three or four years from now. So. That's it in quick quick summary. I think now like wow. you think about cyborg, we're certainly still augmenting or enabling the ability for people to create custom products. And so there's a whole kind of physicality element there. And then also, you know, this is we're talking about computer vision. Some of our tools will certainly be helpful and useful for enabling augmented reality. And so there's a whole, you know, cyborg sort of dimension of to that too. If you can see into a different dimension, you know, that certainly classifies as cyborg too, I think. So.
1: Hmm, totally. You've got me thinking about actually the whole idea of computers sensing it strikes me so i'm old i'm a, a gen xer i learned to program in basic which was you know the, the one of the first sort of interpreted languages available on mainframes mm-hmm. well fortran and basic mm-hmm. and back then computers couldn't sense anything really i mean they i guess you could type and they in that sense they interacted right. with the external world but only through human beings inputting stuff and then we have this just layer after layer of sensory availability for computers now they can see and now they can hear and you know many other things but it strikes me that in all of this this convergence that i think is what you mean by cyborg is happening that that more and more things human beings can sense our computational systems can also sense. Mm-hmm. Does that sound right to you? And what do you make of that? And what's the like upside and downside of adding all this sensorium to our computational devices?
0: There's a really good book, which at least gets your brain, I think, in this, or gets one's brain in this line of thinking, which is computing as... Basically, what Steve Jobs said, like the computer as the bicycle for the mind, you know, yeah. computing as a productivity device. I know this is something that you've also written and talked extensively about yourself, Andy. You know, versus computing as like entertainment. I think, like you know, if you start thinking about that more and more, you know, you, th- you think about just like what are the ways that computers can make us more efficient and more effective. And fortunately, I think it's in like a different vector than like a lot of capital follows, right? Like a lot of capital mm-hmm. follows like the fast scaling the fastest scaling thing which is going to naturally cater to the widest swath of users you know there's interesting interesting stuff i think in exploring like what does what does augmented reality interfaces enable us to do as either knowledge workers or non-knowledge workers um, mm-hmm. to learn faster and do things faster and more skillfully and you know check our work and uh, enable us to see information laid out in different ways and But there is stuff here. And so, you know, I think there's lots of people in the augmented reality space thinking about this. There's probably a few working on it directly. Um, It's mainly entertainment. Entertainment, what you're thinking is like, let's make a thing that everybody will put on their head. But I think that for any new, like, computing medium, you first probably need to make it productive before you make it. Entertaining? Yeah, you know, there have been like tens, hundreds, if not billions of dollars of capital chasing sensory input type stuff, like huh. um, and without naming names, a lot of those even recently have kind of blown up and basically never found traction. And I think that if you take a an adage of the startup community, which is to like do one thing well and start with a very small set of users and make sure they absolutely love you, versus like have a broad swath of users just kind of uh. like you only a little bit, they've been pulled in the direction of we must scale very fast. Um right. and so they've been pulled in the direction of Well, let's just take the very, very big bet that we will actually happen to stumble upon the thing that is right for the masses. And I think that a more, you know, a less venture scale path, but a more practical path to at least making a thing that people, to making a a durable idea or a durable team working on a different problem, even if it's not, you know, a billion dollar company overnight, is solving, you know, specific problems for certain types of users and then like slowly expanding from that. So, uh, yeah.
1: I actually think this is a very interesting direction, and I think it reflects a passion that you have that I've sensed in you. Which it's the distinction, in a way, between uh, using this primarily to entertain, which is that's certainly a path to mass adoption. And I mean, there is a certain argument that the worst form of entertainment, which is pornography, has driven. Uh, several cycles of technological <laughs> development right. adoption, like, which is the ultimate sort of passive, disengaged substitute in a way for real life. But what I think is interesting with, about the Steve Jobs' idea that the computer is a bicycle, right, for the mind, is the bicycle is such an involving thing to ride. I love cycling. It's been my main thing that I that I do to get out in the world and use my body and exercise. and And to me, that's what I sense you are motivated by is those extensions. I don't know if I want to say enhancements yet, though I want to talk about that, <laughs> but extensions of human capacity and, and productivity, but maybe more broadly capacity, not just kind of a, a whizzy, great experience that's, that's mm. entertaining, but maybe
0: not developmental. Does that sound accurate? I mean, I think interesting comment here, interesting question, like even what is technology? It can become narrowly defined in our current milieu, if you will, where it's sort of like technology is just social media. Um, yes, or maybe just screens,
1: people... Often, when I want to talk to people about technology, all they want to talk about is screens. I'm like, there's a lot more technology than screens.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I I wore shoes to come over here, and I'm wearing clothes, and I'm surrounded by a building, which is keeping me warm, and I'm drinking coffee, which is maybe a natural thing, but it went through technology to be mutated into a form, which like gives me caffeine, which is a wonderful little drug. You know, people think about technology as screens because they define technology as that which is new. Back to your question about technology. And its purposes. I guess I don't think we're done. You know, um, I don't think this is the uh, the end of history for humanity. There's way, way, way more technology out there. You know, even just from a purely ethical perspective, you know that technology can heal people. That technology can you know give people freedom, an agency, an opportunity. And there's just a lot of people out there in the world that don't have those things. And I think technology can help. And if you think about technology also as an engine of wealth. I think about wealth as being at least correlated historically with you know more freedom, more agency. That more wealth is is also generally good. I'm passionate about trying to tell the non scapegoating story of technology and trying to uh, you know, help broaden people's imaginations as to like what we can do with technology, what we can use technology for. Technology is not just screens. All right, let's. Can we talk about restoring versus
1: enhancing for a few minutes? Mm-hmm,
0: here? Mm. Yeah, um, sign me up. Do,
1: I'm curious whether you have a prosthetic leg or part of your leg is prosthetic, mm-hmm. um, whether that currently actually functions better than a natural leg would, whether it eventually could fun- function better, like could something be built that would actually be a better leg than your natural leg? And to the extent it could be better, would you want the better leg, like the the bionic yeah. leg to be kind of pop culture about it?
0: Yeah. I don't think it's better today. Certainly worse. I think that there is a future in which it is better. You know, my meta question that I think is roughly equivalent to your question is like, what is progress? Yeah, um,
1: exactly.
0: Do we believe in progress? Should we believe in progress? And I think that's a good question. But technology, I think in its like, purest form at least, or you know, maybe all forms, like, increases optionality. It gives, people yeah. more, it gives people more options, more potential, more paths, or unlocks potential. Yeah, I think there's something intrinsically good about that. Like if we think about science as knowing more about the way the universe works. And then technology as being able to do more, we re- can rearrange the atoms in the universe for even yet more potential and and more possibilities. Mm-hmm. there's also something mm-hmm. deeply even like spiritual about that, and something good about that, intrinsically good about that. You know, clearly we humans still use technology for evil every day. Use technology for evil for the next thousand years or longer. And so you know it gets very muddled, right, when you start thinking about like ethics of technology. To your specific question about like what is kind of in the context of my leg, like, what is progress? Right. Um, I think progress is a leg that makes more possibilities possible for yeah, its exactly. users. And if yeah. for every user, that would be a little bit different. You know, like, I might not care about running 10% faster. I kind of hate running anyways. But, you know, <laughs> other people that wear prosthetic legs do care about running 10% faster. And if technology can increase that possibility for them, then I think it is intrinsically good and that we should count that as progress.
1: I love the direction you're going in the sense that I think it's very illuminating and clear in a way. Like, what we're trying to do it is this amazing property of creation, we would say as Christians, that it has you know these sort of fixed elements in one sense, like the the stuff there. There's not more stuff exactly appearing. I mean, matter and energy are essentially fixed, and yet they can be rearranged in these amazing ways as we discover more about the world, and it opens up more and more possibility. And so, I think it is very. It makes sense in a way to say what progress is, is the unfolding and opening up of more possibility. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's some aspect of human good that actually is the opposite of opening up possibility, and it's actually closing down at least certain possibilities. I'll give you two examples. One, uh, they're really different. One is not technological at all, but I think many of us, many of us would say, whether we are married or not, I want to go, I'm thinking about marriage, that what happens when someone forecloses all of their romantic options and chooses a single person mm-hmm. there's something amazing that happens there even though there's a clear decline in optionality mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah um and for that matter i mean what happens i mean i'm, I'm just thinking about this right now but when a, a child is conceived and all the incredible number of combinations of parental DNA get locked into one configuration of you know uh, X, uh, of the two gametes coming together, yep. that something happens in that instantiation of life that isn't the whole possibility set of what human beings can be, but instead mm-hmm. is only one, even often with certain limitations that they inherit. That mm-hmm. there's something good about that. Now, let me give you a totally different example, like a more technological example. I'm thinking about making a better gun one line of a better gun, if we can speak of a better gun, but I think it's, it's an interesting, like what's progress in guns? Well, shoots faster, shoots more accurately. Accurately mm-hmm. is a little bit about limitation as much as option. But let's say like the bullets go where I want them to go. Yep, The bullets go faster, the bullets go harder. Like you can think of all those like intensifications that actually mm-hmm. might give me more options with my gun. But then there's a whole different set of technologies related to guns that that we may desperately need, which is, for example, a gun that doesn't fire unless its owner is has their finger yep. on the trigger, yep. and that's actually a limiting of the gun that um, limits its possibility, but that I think we would see as real progress uh, that mm-hmm. would actually address a, a massive vulnerability that comes with mm-hmm. firearms. Yep. So is there another dimension of technological progress that's actually about closing down options and limits,
0: do you think? So I, one example that I think is helpful as a thought experiment is like, should Christians fight off death? Should we avoid yeah. death? Should we, right, uh, right. you know, should we try to extend human life? Right. You know, Let's fight cancer. Let's beat cancer. And then there's also more like radical longevity, anti-aging type stuff clearly happening too. I think the quintessential example today then of like you take that thought process that like okay, death is bad, death is not natural. You know, death will eventually go away. So to the degree that we can make progress against death in the here and now, even if we don't believe we completely defeat it, is generally in the again in the right direction. Giving people more years is giving them more optionality. um, You know, in their life. Then you take the example of like what about grandma who's ninety five. You know, like, she just wants to go happily. You know, she, she needed rage against the dying of the light. You know, is that really fair to grandma to, like, demand that she do that? Um, and I think that my frame always is, like, well, there's a difference between, like, the population statistic and the individual statistic. So I think we as a culture should fight against death. But, like, you know, individuals, when presented with dire life circumstances, you know, is it really healthy to spend your last six months Like being super anxious about this happening versus like moving into a stage of grief and acceptance. Like I think, you know, most people would advocate for the former, but I don't think these two things are a a tension, basically. I think that we can both as a society, as a species, as believers, like fight against death um, and try to make improvements against it. But still, you know, when gripped with it as an individual level, you know, deal with it also in the right way.
1: Well, let me follow up on that. So, I think that population versus person distinction is is actually very helpful and illuminating. But then there are persons, I mean, you think of some parts of, you know, what's styled the transhumanist movement, and this isn't everybody who associates with that movement by any means, but there is a type of transhumanist who really is overcome with the goal of entirely cheating death? Like, that is the goal, is, is let's find some way, whether it involves, uh, I know this is a big of a character but, you know, uh, uploading yeah. my brain and, and that kind of stuff. But to entirely escape death, do you think that's a, a good option for a human being to take?
0: I think that, I mean, invariably... Anytime you take something to its extreme, it starts to break down. So, you know, making the case that we should try to add 20 years to everybody's life, I stand pretty firmly with. I think that's like generally a good thing. You know, should we disembody ourselves and become like gods? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> good question. <laughs> I think the threat of this is like some sort of Greek dualism where, like, we believe that the spirit is good and the material is bad. And we yeah. want to escape the material, which is bad and mortal and finite, and to, you know, become only spiritual or only the idea as its purest form. Like, I think that's what's going on at kind of the meta narrative level of the yes. transhumanist movement. The unethical thing about that is like we're trying to escape the material and that, you know, you believe the material is bad. That's like the fundamental lie of the transhumanist mu- movement is that the material is bad.
1: But I sense a tension here because I think part of why there's this tendency to believe the material is bad and spiritual is good or the ideal or, you know, whatever the non material, Mm -hmm. however that's described, is the sense that there's more possibility in the non-material, because the material is bound and limited in various ways. I mean, bound, among other things, by the second law of thermodynamics, like inevitable decay involved in any action that that brings order. So as much possibility as there is, the extraordinary possibility of the world, getting that order into place does require uh, more (laughs) decay. And if we could get out of the material world, then the other side of what you were talking about, which is, the expansion of possibility, well, once we're free from the material, if if you're in the realm of pure math, you have actual infinities available to you in a way that you don't have infinity available to you when you're an embodied material creature. Mm. So how do you square that circle between really seeing progress as being the opening up of possibility, but then you don't want to say we should go to the extreme of getting rid of the material world, which is the biggest constraint
0: on our possibilities? I think my belief, at least right now, and, you know, I'm kind of open to changing it, or at least open to thinking more about it and learning more about it, is uh, it's kind of hard to know. You know, it's just empirically hard to know what's going to happen at the end of time. Um, <laughs> that seems, that's a fairly fair uh, <laughs> uh, um, position. <laughs> yeah, but but I think that I would at least, you know, posit as one man's perspective with a lot of, you know, all the normal disclaimers that like the arch of like the biblical story is like a an arch from, pure materiality to a material, spiritual world. Um, Uh, And that, uh you know, the end state is the ultimate fusion of those two things. And that the end state is neither pure material nor sort of ethereal, pure spiritual, but it is actually the grand unification of those things, like kind of as it was always meant to be.
1: Yeah, Which seems like, in one way, the doctrine of the ascension which has a human material body that can be touched, that still has wounds, uh, even a body that can eat uh, fish mm-hmm. if he wants, that nonetheless is part of some supra material reality that we would call the presence of God or the Son in the presence of the Father. Uh, but also mm-hmm. there's this spiritual reality to his to his body. And of course, Paul uses this language too. He talks about the yep. flesh, the fleshly body versus the spiritual body. That's literally his
0: his phrase, right? This certainly is true. Or is a crazy idea that like these different dimensions of like the spiritual and the material are like coming together and they came together in the person of Jesus. We now are agents. You know, we are, I think... Jesus says on John, right? Like we are like gods, lowercase g, this deification. This is a crazy idea, absolutely insane idea. Like humans have a foot in each place, right? Have a foot in each dimension. And through straddling those dimensions, we actually facilitate like the soft spaces that like enable those dimensions to merge. I think that if you start thinking about these different pieces, like okay, maybe the, maybe we're scapegoating the material, maybe we're just you know basically being Greeks and saying that like oh material is bad, spiritual is good. Therefore, I only want spiritual. Material is bad. Um, if you take that piece, then if you take the gospel as the like merging of the material and the spiritual, you're sort of yeah. left wondering how broad is quote the gospel, or what is like the kingdom, and is it only encompassing like human souls or is it like human soul bodies or is it like actually all things is it the entire created order the whole cosmos absolutely yeah it's the whole it's the whole thing and so i don't think that my prosthetic leg has a soul do i think my prosthetic leg is doing some sort of good which will have some sort of ripple into eternity yes i do i do
1: i think that's very close to the heart of the question (laughs) yeah I,
0: i think the way that i think about this is like Well, you kind of are first left asking the question, I think, which is always like, can you make progress within yourself? And then that sort of naturally transitions over to your external worldview. Like, can I make progress in the world? And so, you know, in the same way, nobody would claim that we can become, well, maybe some people would, but I would call them heretics. Nobody would claim that, you know, on this side of the great unification, we can become perfect. Um, You know, Paul says, but we should still try. Right, like, should we then mm. keep up going sitting? Like, by no means. Like, of course you shouldn't. I, I think the same. Is, the same thing is true. Like, in the material. Well, we'll never be able to make even if it's. Uh, even if your conclusion is, we'll never be able to make a prosthetic leg which is as good as a natural leg. You know. Well, then, but should we keep on trying? Like, yes, of course we should. Like, we're moving in a mm. in a positive direction. The the point again is moving in this direction of po- of of possibility, potential, growth. This comes to something
1: I've been thinking about quite a bit. I'm I'm very interested in how you'd approach it, which is the difference between devices and instruments. So Let's say we define a device as a thing that operates on its own without human beings having to operate it and thus disburdens us, relieves us of having to do something. So Mm -hmm. my furnace operates all by itself, uh, unlike the fireplace, which I have to tend. And so a lot of technology is the introduction of devices into the world that actually relieve us of having to do anything at all to, you know, heat our homes or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. But then there's other kinds of high technology that actually very much involve human beings. And the word I'm thinking about for these instruments, which is uh, like scientific instruments, even massive ones like the Large Hadron Collider, which literally has to be operated by thousands of people and built by thousands of people, Mm-hmm. But without people, it doesn't do anything, right? It's, and, and yet it allows human beings to extend our capacities mm-hmm. without replacing us. It extends us rather than replacing us. So, mm-hmm. it, it strikes me that technology is this sort of ongoing story of the provision of devices, which actually makes us less capable in the world, but also allows us to create new instruments that make us more capable. And this gets back to something I want to ask you about, which is the bicycle of the mind. It's a very interesting metaphor because a bi- I would think of a bicycle as an instrument uh, in this sense that mm-hmm. the bicycle fully engages me, rec- actually develops me. I become more fully the me I want to be in a way when mm-hmm. I'm riding a bicycle strength, uh, certain kinds of agility, certain kinds of attention to the world around me, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it would have been interesting, like if. One technological direction for the bicycle would be, why not build a motorcycle for the mind? I mean, why settle for a bicycle that (laughs) you have to pedal? Like, we don't need a bicycle for the mind, we need a motorcycle. But then, actually, what we want is a self-driving motorcycle for the Mm -hmm, mind, mm -hmm. where we won't have to pedal or steer or anything but just tell it where to go. Mm -hmm. But then, suddenly, it starts to break down because now I'm not using my mind if it's completely self-driving, right? So. to me, this is like the big fork in the road is, are we going to use technology to just develop more and more devices that actually just supplant us and replace us? I'm not saying devices are all bad. If nothing else, they can free us up. I mean, I have time to right. practice the piano yeah. because I'm not out chopping wood. So, yep. uh, And I'm, I'm using an instrument in that case. It's just that I think there's a big difference between technology that just replaces me, even if it replaces me with something way better than me in certain ways, like faster, Mm -hmm. stronger, whatever, and technology that actually develops me. I'd love to go back to standard cyborg in the sense that I'd love to hear, I know that you said very hard to predict how this 3D modeling volumetric analysis will be used because people will do things with it you have not imagined. I wonder if you could dream out loud a little bit about what do you imagine this being used for? That would be just amazing to have in the world that that right now is not either not in the world or not widely accessible, and will become accessible because of the things you all are developing.
0: Yeah, I, I don't. You know, obviously, I don't see my like primary role as a dreamer, uh, nor maybe as my primary role as a pragmatist. You know, like I, again, you have a foot in each camp, right? You're trying to like. Pull the future into, into the now, but not the not the too far future if you're trying to like bring the 20 year future into the now you're uh, a crazy person and if you're trying to pull the future you know from tomorrow into today, and then you're just like everybody else then there's sort of no special contribution <laughs> right i don't know that this would be like what Standard cyborg directly contributes to i'll just talk a little bit about like the three d world you know, this idea that like we can sort of virtually or digitally transform the world in front of us um, to look like a different world. How would you convince somebody, for instance, to like change the skyline of San Francisco dramatically? You know, take an entire neighborhood, remove the building height restriction so that you could build up whatever tall building you would want. And how could you give somebody a vision of what that future would look like? You get them excited about it. You know, it's difficult today, but what would be interesting is like, what if, you know, the residents of that neighborhood could sort of like opt into this virtual layer. Huh. To see what would this neighborhood be like, you know, if we had lots of tall buildings, or you know, what would this huh. neighborhood be like if we remo- removed it from three lanes of traffic, you know, to one lane of traffic, and then you know, put garden beds into like the rest of it, you know, what would the city look like if all the roofs were covered in like greenery and like you know, plants and you know, life? What would it be like if we had? You do this both visually and auto-totally, What would it be like if we had? You know, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, you know, like landing at various sites throughout the city. Those things today are just really hard to communicate to people. Live yeah. a day in this little virtual space, and then you can vote, like yes or no. Do you want this future? Do you not want this future? Um, that can be pretty interesting.
1: Like living inside an architectural model for a day and just kind to of feel it, sense it, rather than just uh, be told about it or, or have it statically represented.
0: Yeah, yeah. I and mean, you, you can do this at home yourself. You can like pull up your phone, download the IKEA app, put the swarmy chair, whatever the name of it is, uh, in, the, in the corner and uh, move around it and check it out. You know? So you can do this at a very small scale today, but it'll only scale up to a city scale. How do you get people excited about the future? You know, people aren't excited about the future at all. People don't even really believe in progress. So how would you get them excited about progress? You'd make it very, very compelling. And what's the best way to make it compelling? It's to make it very visual and make it personal.
1: I love what you just said. How do you get people to believe in progress? Because most people don't believe in progress at all. And you believe in progress <laughs> and you kind of see it and you see it in that entrepreneurial way of not just sort of the crazy futuristic, you you've said, you know, it's not utopia. That's not, that's not what you believe in. It's not what you see. Where did that come from in your mm. life? Do you think <laughs> what's the source of that belief that most people don't have?
0: So, you know, I think certainly living in the Bay Area has, you know, had its impact on me. You know, I don't think that I would have a lot of the same ideas if I had grown up in, or if I, you know, sort of maybe still lived in the middle of the country somewhere. Um, I, don't, I don't know that I would um, have all these ideas. So I think certainly the Bay Area has had some impact on that.
1: When did you move? When did, you, when
0: did the I Bay was, Area become your uh, region? I was like 22 when I moved to the Bay Area,
1: why did you move to the Bay Area
0: in the first place? To do a startup. There's no other place to, uh, <laughs> you know. There's there's few, um, unfortunately, there's just few densities of people out there in the world that believe that any progress is either important or possible. Usually you have to be a little bit delusional to believe that any sort of change is possible because change is really hard. And so it's like convenient to surround yourself with other delusionaries. <laughs> Otherwise you might get demotivated and want to quit. So, like, that's the power of the Bay Area. It's a cultural thing, you know. There's enough highly skilled and, you know, a little bit delusional people all in one pretty small geography that, you know, magic can happen sometimes. And that is, like, hard to replicate in, you know, Des Moines or, or Cary, North Carolina, where I was from. So, yeah, that's that's why I found me here. So, you know, connecting a little bit deeper, though, I think that, like, the thing that I've always wanted was a, it's the question that we all ask, which is, like, why am I here? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um why am I here? What am I supposed to do here? And do I have any framework to like guide me in that kind of a thing? And so it's played out in my work, it's played out in what I've read, it's played out who I've spoken to, about what things. And I hope it hasn't ended yet. I hope I'll have more interesting thoughts decades to come. You know, I've just never been that that cool with just being told what to do, you know, or being told that ah, this is it and this is what you should believe and and that's it, you know, at least has had me attempt to try to ask some of these questions. And again, I hope that I haven't come to the answers, because that would mean an end of history state for my intellectual journey, which would be very sad. I've always desired more. And so I think that desire for moreness, desire for truth. Jeff Huber of Standard
1: Cyborg. As he said at the beginning, it's a pretty epic name. There's a really striking moment in the beginning of the biblical book of Revelation that I thought about as Jeff and I were talking Jesus is speaking to the churches scattered around the rim of the Mediterranean Sea. And to one of those churches, he says, To the one who overcomes, I will give a white stone. And on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. It's a crazy, amazing idea that each of us has an epic name that we ourselves have not yet fully heard. And we won't necessarily christen ourselves. We aren't going to name ourselves, just like we didn't give ourselves our own own first names. But there is an epic name for us, for each one of us, that when we hear it, we will really understand who we were meant to be and all that we've overcome. And it strikes me that Jeff is the kind of person who will not be satisfied until he gets that white stone. The full truth about what his life was and could be And he's creating out of that drive to overcome and to know the full truth about himself and the world. Standard Cyborg is at standardcyborgalloneword.com. They're hiring, by the way, in vision, geometry, and 3D deep learning. Check them out. If you want to know more about Praxis and what we do, visit us at PraxisLabs.org, PraxisLabs, all one wordorg If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. That's by far the best way for other people to find out about the show. And we'd also love to address your questions. And we're preparing a bonus episode at the end of this season based totally on questions you have. So just leave them right in the review. Or you can also give us comments and questions on our website at Podcast.PraxisLabs.org, where you can also get show notes and transcripts. The Redemptive Edge is produced by Mary Elizabeth Goodell, who in her day job is community manager for Praxis, with executive production from Scott Kaufman, our partner for content. And we're very grateful to Narrativo for their editing and production help. I'm Andy Crouch. Thanks for joining us on The Redemptive Edge.